This episode was made possible by ExpressVPN. Start browsing the web securely with three months free by going to expressvpn.com MMI. On this episode of Meet My Inspiration, I talk with Josh Pelland. Josh is a former Royal Marine Commando, having served in Afghanistan, amongst many other places. He left the Royal Marines and spent some time working in maritime security all around the world. He then returned to his home in Western Canada and dedicated himself to a life of climbing and adventure. That was until 2016, when a fall, while climbing, left him paralyzed below the chest. Josh has been challenged and struggled through a lot but he's never given up. He's a humble guy with an incredible story, and I'm very happy I had the chance to talk with him. And now, please welcome Josh Pelland. Hello, everyone. I'm Chris Minion, and this is Meet My Inspiration. My guest today is Josh Pelland. Josh, thanks so much for joining me on Meet My Inspiration today. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure, Josh. Thank you. Let's begin with you sharing a quick overview of your background and what you're doing now. Okay, so... um... Yeah, my background's been pretty pretty diverse. Um, I guess where my real adventure started was uh, traveling to Kenya as a young lad at 16. Um, that took me all over East, all over Kenya. Uh, a lot of adventures. Traveled around on my own for a while, and um, came back to Canada. Was pretty lost, sort of thing. You know, not really fitting in needing a little bit more lust for adventure, I guess you could say. Got into rock climbing at that time, um, but ultimately ended up in Britain, uh, joining the Royal Marine Commandos. So pretty elite fighting force. Uh, Ended up sticking around there for seven years, uh, working some pretty specialized units at that time. Uh, Came outside, like left the military, and I went into the private security world. Um, Worked all over Africa, Middle East, a bit in Asia. Did that for a few years. I was living in South Africa at the time. I started really getting back into my roots of climbing, which I did on and off for a few years. And I kind of was getting a bit burnt out, stressed out, kind of comes with that line of work and decided I'm done. I'm going back to Canada, where I originally came from, and uh, started climbing full time. Ended up living in the back of a truck for a few years, climbing ice in the wintertime, traditional kind of mountaineering and rock climbing. And in 2016, I ended up having a pretty, pretty bad accident. I ended up falling 65 feet straight down uh, out for a day of rock climbing. I don't know what happened. I can't really remember. And uh, ended up doing eight months in a hospital, ended up being paralyzed from the waist down. And uh, yeah, that was a big life-changing event. And then pretty short after actually being injured, about three months, I got into hand cycling, which is a paracycling sport. And that's what I've pretty much been doing since then. So that was like a really quick overview. And uh, well, there, There's a lot, lot to unpack there. And we're going to get into most of yeah. that in more detail, of course, um, as we go along. Um, well, let's go back to your, to your early life. Um, so where did you grow up and what kind of upbringing did you have? Yeah, so I grew up uh, all over Canada, really. Um, my father was in the Canadian Forces at the time, in the Air Force. So that got us to moving all over the place, brother and sister. And uh, yeah, really standard 
home, really loving parents. Um, also, I was allowed to be be quite adventurous, you know, which was which is what I needed. So I really got to thank my mom for allowing me to be like, letting me be like that, you know, just let me be Aladdin, get amongst it and, you know, get into trouble, get dirty, you know, so. So when, when you were a kid, Josh, um, who, who did you look up to? Who did you admire when you were uh, a young kid? So yeah, I really, I, I spent a lot of time poring over, you know, National Geographic magazines, you know, climbers, explorers, ocean rowers, you know, warriors, this sort of stuff. And I wasn't a big reader, but I did love reading about, you know, guys getting stuck on the side of a mountain, you know, guys getting in a battle in a jungle, you know, all this sort of stuff. This is what really just got me down the path that I wanted to go down. Can you remember one person in particular from, from those National Geographics that really stood out to you? Not, not so much. I do, I do remember like a cover of an old one, which looking back and I think it was a guy on the face of a face of K2 or whatever. And I was just, you know, enthralled with that. I just, I just love that, you know, with his mask on and all this stuff. And I was just like, oh, I want to be there, you know, type thing, but not, not one guy in particular or anyone in particular. No. Yeah. I love that. The national geographic. I read that as a, as a kid as well. And that's a, that is yeah. a very inspiring um, publication. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, now, you mentioned earlier that you did, in fact, join the military. You spent some time in Kenya traveling around as a youngster. Um, you said you came back to Canada. You were a bit lost. Let's get into where you yeah. made the decision to, to join the military. What, what was your motivation for deciding to join the military? Yeah, I, like I said, I kind of needed that. I needed that adventure. I needed that, that direction, really, and that, that sense of purpose and, and the challenge. I needed a really big challenge. So I got all of that into joining the Royal Marines. Um, so what really drew me to them was the length of training, which is eight months long. So it's the longest in, out of any NATO country. Um, and, and sort of the end. That's the basic sorry. training. Well, that's the that's, basic. Yeah, that's the basic, basic training, yeah. Um, so sort of the, the end product as well really drew me to them, you know you know, learning, well, training, you know, learning to live, fight, and survive in all different environments. And uh, yeah, that's, I just wanted to go on operations, test myself, see if I could do it, all that sort of stuff. And you grew, uh, you grew up in a, sorry, in a, you grew up in a military family, I guess you could say, you said your dad was in the, the Air Force. Do you think that that yeah. had some? Do you think that that had some part in in motivating you or, or inspiring you to want to join the military? It did. It did. Um, though the two are very, very different, and he did he did leave the military uh, when I was, I don't know, maybe ten or eleven, sort of age. So, um, but yeah, that was that was a bit of motivation, sort of that family history. Both my grandfathers were in as well, mm. so that kind of got got me going there. And then also, I, I don't know, I think I always kind of didn't really fit in as well. You know, I, was, I wasn't going down the same path as everyone else around me, my peer group sort of thing. And then, you know, leaving Canada to go to the UK, that was a, the big adventure part as well, something completely new for me. Well, you, you of course, joined the Royal Marines, um, as you said, an elite fighting force. Um, for people who may not be familiar with the Royal Marines, 
Um, how, what, what sets them apart from other military branches? How would you describe the Royal Marines? So that, that training, the, the length of training is very different. Um, they're a specialist amphibious force with over 350 years of history behind them. So steep tradition, steep brotherhood, um, and all of that as well drew me to them. Um, they've undergone a lot of changes throughout that time, um, adapting to different theaters of war and also operating in all, all theaters from the high Arctic, the jungle, the desert, on the ocean. And they also have a wide variety of capabilities within them. So that was, that's pretty much them in a nutshell. Well thing. Um, so for you, what was the process of joining the Royal Marines like? Yeah, uh, for me, I had to do all my application from Canada and then go across. And what they have is they have, they call it a potential Royal Marines course where I had to come across, I had to do all my recruiting office and all of that in the UK. So that was a big chance or taking a big chance. And then they also have a uh, sort of like a three day testing and selection sort of thing to see if you like them and if they like you. And they just run you ragged for three days. and It's a pretty big shock to the system. And uh, yeah, got selected. They said, yeah, we're, you're kind of someone we want. And then I had to come home, wait around for several months, uh, waiting for some security clearance type thing, and then got my date to join. So the, the eight-month initial training program, it's the, it's the longest, um, you said, for, for, I guess, any military branch of basic training. You know, for your average person who hasn't been through something like that, how would you describe that period of time, those eight months? Testing. It's very, very physical. Uh, very mental, um, but everything, everything in it is a gradual buildup. You know, they're not just going to go, all right, put all this weight on your back and start marching off through the night. You know, no one's, no one's really going to be able to do that. Well, some people will have the physical capability, but they'll just get, they'll just get broken right away. So there's a gradual teaching, gradual fitness buildup, and everything just leads on to the next thing. It's a very challenging, very testing environment. Uh, mm -hmm. How do you think that it changed you as a person? Um, you said that you were kind of lost when you initially decided to join the military. That is a very long period of time for a young man, eight months. When you came out of that eight yeah. month period, what do you think was changed about you? Uh, I had that, I definitely had that sense of direction, that sense of purpose that belonging, um, that brotherhood, the, the ability to take ownership and leadership, as well as, you know, being in a high trust, being able to work in a high trust group, being able to fit into that. And that was, that was a big motivating, motivating factor. Well, it sounds like it changed you quite a lot. So mm -hmm. after you finished your basic training, um, what was your first deployment? So my first sort of like, I guess you could say technical deployment, not overseas, was to Scotland uh, defending the UK's nuclear deterrent. 
And that was a unit that I was there for two years. So you're, based, you're pretty much just on standby for protecting the UK's nuclear submarines and some of the other stuff that they have there in the different locations. And that was, a, that was a really great, really great place for me. I was surrounded by guys with a ton of experience. I also got to go on a lot of training trips to the States, to the jungle in Central America. So I really got to grow up as it were there and learn for some learn from some amazing guys that kind of pushed me forward into my career gave me gave me guys i could model myself after was there one guy in particular that you can that you can remember that um stands out to you to this day during that maybe two-year period in the uk and during your training period that really stood out yeah. somebody that you really looked up to yeah there was a guy called jordy uh, he was a corporal so he had rank um a sniper and he he gave he gave me the real a real he demonstrated what leadership was to me um you know he was a, he was approach he was a he was a guy that was approachable very humble and i remember I, I wanted to i wanted to progress on into my career and i knew one of the skills that i had to be strong at was map reading and i was i was pretty horrible at it you know like the I could be outside and I could, I could look at my map in the hills and figure out where I was and where I needed to go. But all the sort of technical math side, I was, I was horrible at. And I just asked him and he took the time to sit down with me over however long, I can't remember, and teach me, you know, just stop and teach me. And when I didn't get it, he would figure out a way to make it work. And man, that has always, always stuck with me. So yeah, Jordy, great guy. Really look, really, really looked up to him. It's a wonderful guy to have in your life. Um, so you were there for two years, um, protecting the UK's yeah. um, nuclear subs and also going out on training missions and things like that. Um, yeah. What was your first overseas deployment? So overseas was like a few few years later, where I I moved on to a different I moved on to a different unit. Um, it's called Special Forces Support Group. Uh, it falls under the umbrella of the UK Special Forces, so it's separate from the core. But it's not. It's kind of hard to compare it to any other unit. Maybe our closest one would be in the states would be the 75th Ranger Regiment. Um, in the UK, the uh, UK Special Forces is SAS, SBS, Special Boat Service, Special Air Service. And we're, I guess you could say, below that in tier two operation. And it was to Afghanistan. That was the tour that I did was in Afghanistan. That was in 2010 in Helmand province. So if you look on a map of Afghanistan, it's South Central, basically. Um, pretty busy, pretty busy place. Yeah. That's one way to put it. It's, that's some of the toughest fighting period um, during the, the conflict in Afghanistan went down in Helmand province. Is that correct? That's correct, yes, definitely. So, Josh, when you arrived in Afghanistan, it, you must have known that it was going to be quite different from your previous experience. Um, it was your first combat zone, I'm assuming. Um, yeah. Was it a shock to you when you arrived there, or did you feel like you were well-prepared and well-trained for that kind of environment? I was, I was very well-prepared. You know, the unit, the unit that I was working in, um, 
and all my previous experiences and the units before, um, yeah, brought me to that point of being being prepared. I also had a lot of experience around me, guys that had been on multiple tours, okay. very senior. I, I was young uh, in, in amongst guys that were very senior. So uh, that gave me an extreme amount of confidence. So I, I knew I just, I was there again, getting on with my job. Where did you spend the most time deployed? You were in the UK, you were in Afghanistan. I'm sure you went to other places as well. Where did you spend the most time deployed? So UK pretty much. When I was at that unit as well, we did stuff in the, in the UK. But um, yeah, war fighting would be Afghanistan. And that was just one, I only did one tour. And that was, um, yeah, almost seven months. That's, that's long enough, yeah. I think, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what were some other um, perhaps notable places that you were deployed to? So the UK, Afghanistan, some time in the US? Yeah, time in the US. We did train, training in the Oman and then also in Belize. In Belize, so, kind of made your way around the world. Yeah. They say, uh, you know, join the military, see the world, but you end up in all the rough places. <laughs> Yeah, not the places you want to go necessarily. Yeah. Um, so when you were in Afghanistan, seven months, um, a, a combat zone, um, no question. How would you describe to somebody who hasn't been in that kind of environment, for most people, for the most part, what's the lifestyle of living in a combat zone and knowing that you could be sent out at a moment's notice, there could be a firefight that pops up uh, anytime, you're constantly preparing yeah. and to go out on missions. What is that lifestyle like? tiring yeah. really tiring um it depends it depends on what you're doing where you are you know you could and i i, got, I was i was pretty fortunate you know i was able to do a whole variety of stuff within that operation so some of it would be kind of long-range patrolling as it were living out of vehicles for months at a time fighting and patrolling in urban areas doing kind of direct action raids. Uh, I also mentored, uh, you know, a small team of our, our Afghan counterparts. So for instance, living out of vehicles for months at a time, you know, you're just sleeping on the ground or on a small cot bed, not really showering, maybe just rinsing with water bottles, moving, moving around at night and moving into an area throughout the night or whatever. Um, yeah, depends. You might just be doing some sort of like, yeah, you might, you know, you might just be doing foot patrolling and trying not to step on IEDs or just engaging the enemy or waiting to get engaged. I don't know, it's, it changes, it's, it changes, it changes so much. Yeah. And it can be really boring as well. That's a good point. Really, really a lot, boring. A lot of times just doing, doing nothing. It, it yeah. goes from really intense situations um, to mm -hmm. completely boring situations that can go on for an extended period of time. That, that seven month period of time being you know, in a combat zone, how did that affect you mentally? Um, what I wanna know is, did it feel like you were in a supportive environment um, amongst your fellow soldiers? Or did it feel like you were kind of dealing with everything mentally at least 
on your own? No, it was, it was very support. It was very supportive. You know, I've, I could go into situations where I knew 100% that we were going to be getting into a gunfight and that it was going to be a heavy gunfight, you know? Um, and I felt calm and calculated throughout, throughout all of that. Uh, even leading up into it, you know, whether you're walking into the, the target area, you know, I felt just at ease type thing. And even after all of that is during and even after all that is said and done, you know, if I needed to, it didn't happen, but if I needed to talk to someone, you know, I could put my hand up and go, Hey, that was, I did not like that. Or this isn't sitting well with me, whatever, you did know, you actually do that? Maybe that. No, I didn't, you know, maybe it was just not part of that culture yeah. at the time. It yeah. definitely wasn't really. Um, but I felt like if I needed to, I could, could do something like that. That's kind of why, that's kind of why I asked that question because I think that, you know, there's obviously many, many well-known cases of people coming back from that environment and having PTSD and, and you know, struggling with everything that they were dealing with in that combat zone. And for most people not having been in a combat zone, I was just curious, do you, know, do you guys talk, talk amongst yourselves? Seems like probably yeah. most of them don't. Um, but yeah, go ahead. Def sorry, definitely not at that time. Uh, guys didn't talk about that, that stuff. But there was uh, there was one other guy that actually had a pretty impactful um, impact on me, and it was before I actually went. Uh, he was a very senior guy uh, in Iraq, Afghanistan, um, and he just he told me. I remember I was walking down a hallway before where we were staying, um, the barracks or whatever you want to call it, and he just said, "Hey, Josh, when when you're coming back and." If there's any issues, just feel free to come and talk to me. You know, and that was like, that was a big shock to me, you know, because it was at the time, it's, it's much better now at the time that was not happening. So, you know, that's where that kind of comfort in the back of my head that I could reach out and chat to someone was. That's, that's nice that there was at least somebody like that that, that gave you a little reassurance. Mm -hmm. And you say, you say things are different now. How do, how do you think they're different now? Yeah, there's a there's a big there's a big push to probably in the last maybe three four years, um, and it's probably due to the the impact that PTSD, uh, other issues, anxiety, depression, you know, have had on lads coming back from all these tours. Um, there's been a big push for people to get out, speak up about these things, reach out for help, which is pretty awesome, you know. Yeah. Because it definitely makes, and within the military as well, not just for guys that are outside, you know, because it definitely makes uh, people a lot stronger, you know, when they can deal with these issues and then continue on with their careers instead of just having issues and then you got to leave and left alone. Yeah, yeah. Well, Josh, what was your total time in the military? Did you say seven years earlier, I think? Yeah, six, six years. Six, six years, years. So six years. Why did you decide to to leave? I was just ready for the next thing. 
sort of thing. Um, there was a couple things going on that I didn't, I didn't like the way I had to kind of get back to the core as it were, you know, I was separate from it mm. and I had to go back. I kind of wanted to stay where I was. And at the time that wasn't an option. Um, so I was like, all right, see, I'm, I'm done. I'm moving on next, next thing, next thing. So I left very satisfied with, with what I did, you know? Yeah, sure. So how was your transition back to civilian life? So my transition to civilian life was, well, I, I went into private security. It's basically like the military, but with freedom and money. So, you know, all the guys, all the guys are similar backgrounds. Um, a lot more relaxed though. Um, well, I want to talk, being I able, talk, sorry to interrupt you, Josh, but I, I do want to talk yeah. about that. I know what you did um, following that. Um, yeah. You entered into maritime security. How quickly yeah. did you enter into that after you left the military? What was the period of time? I, I basically stepped out of the gate and then straight onto a job. Oh, so there so, you pretty much did not really have to transition back to a normal civilian life, as it were. No, where I did incur um, issues was when I left the private security world. You know, that's where I really came into the actual real world type thing. Well, um, let's, maybe, let's maybe come back to that in a second then. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about your, your time after the military. You entered into maritime security. Um, I yeah. think it was at a time when like Somali piracy was at its, at its height. Um, could you yeah. describe that period of your life? Yeah, it was busy. A lot of, a lot of going in and out of airports, uh, traveling constantly. I was living in South Africa at the time in Durban on the uh, east, east coast. Um, and what I was doing was I would either travel with the vessel from point A to point B or on its trading circuit, or I was doing other stuff like moving weapons and equipment around uh, to various ports where they were stored in preparation for other teams. Um, or I was training um, crews and giving briefs to officers, captains of vessels. So I might fly to Singapore and just be there for a day and prep the crew and vessel and then go off somewhere else. So it was quite, quite busy. Um, quite, quite boring, really, you know, spent a lot of time on the bridge of big oil tankers, just chit-chatting with whoever was running the ship type thing. Um, got to go in and out of a lot of really dirty African ports, North Africa, East Africa. Um, yeah, probably went to about 30 different countries during that time, 30 plus maybe. Wow. So pretty busy. And how long did you do that for? I did it maybe for three years, two and a bit, three years, something like that. Close yeah. to three years. Did, did you ever encounter any, any dangerous situations? I mean, you said there was a lot of just kind of downtime, doing not much, maybe sitting in airports a lot, yeah. but. Yeah, I was quite busy. Um, yeah, not, nothing really dangerous because what we would do is we'd make, make the vessel basically like a floating fortress. Mm -hmm. So it was also a visual deterrent. So 
anybody that wanted to come and board, they would see, okay, there's just going to be too much of a hassle. We'll wait for an easier kind of target, as it were. Um, we did have some skiffs try to approach and test the water, as it and nothing. I did hear though one night, and it was it was quite eerie to hear a I think it was a Chinese vessel being attacked um, by multiple little skiffs, and they didn't have any security on board, and they were radioing for a coalition warship that was way too far to have any impact on them. So I don't know if they got taken or not, but I remember hearing that and it was, it was quite, quite eerie. And it also made the crew very unsettled as we were headed in that direction. And obviously you were in no position to, to do anything. Um, most were you there on the ship by yourself? I'm assuming. No, was, um, there was a couple other guys with oh, me in okay. the team, the security team. But, but yeah, we we couldn't do anything anyways. And that wasn't yeah. no. Yeah, that's it. It wasn't uh we wouldn't we navigated away from it, but it was so far ahead of us anyway. If we were gonna, you know, interdict them or whatever, it'd be hours type thing. Yeah. So the, the, the vessels that you were on and, and cooperating with, they were most likely just well prepared. Um, well stocked, yeah. and like you said, there was a visual deterrent as well, so you, you didn't have to encounter any of that stuff yourself. So that's actually yeah, cool. no. So yeah. after after your time in maritime security, like I said, we'll come back to this point. Um, you did in fact yeah. transition back to civilian life at that point, I guess, right? So I'd like to hear about yeah. that. So you spent you know seven years in the military, close to three years, not really in the military, but not quite a normal civilian. So when you did um, leave the the maritime security work. What was your life like at that point? Yeah, pretty pretty lost, you know. I I came home and I really had no plan, no direction. Uh, a lot of the things that I did try just didn't seem to pan out, and I felt I felt very very lost, you know. Um, and. I really didn't, you know, it was almost 10 years since I was living in Canada. I really didn't know my country, my family, really, you know, everything, everything seemed very foreign to me. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that, a lot of that trust that I had with the, these guys that I worked with for so long, um, that wasn't that, that wasn't around, you know, I just, I didn't have it anymore. Um, and I felt very, very distant. A lot of that, though, was down, down to myself. Um, you know, not having, not having a plan, as well as trying to just hold on to this, this past of mine. You know, kind of really letting it take a hold of me. I did, I did want to climb, and I did climb, and that was what I really, really was passionate about. But it took it took a it took a while to get settled into that rhythm and kind of find that joy again. Um, and that period of climbing was was a very very healing time for me. You know. Well, so. let's let's get into climbing then. Um, you you came back after your time in maritime security. You kind of. Were a bit lost, which it totally makes sense. I mean, you you created a whole new life for yourself, and then you came back to this rather foreign environment. Um, 
So what was, what was it about climbing that appealed to you so much? What did you get out of climbing that made it such a fulfilling experience for you? So, yeah, the couple things was that that trust, that trust again was there between myself and a climbing partner. Um, the sense of adventure, the physical pursuit of it, as well as the physical pursuit and the, the technical, technical pursuit and um, also sort of the preparation, the logistical preparation and all that, kind of that militaristic kind of stuff really drew me to it. And sort of the climbing is quite a, quite a personal, I don't know how to say it, like kind of an art form in a, in a sense. It's, it's it can, I don't know, maybe spiritual in a, in a kind of way, sure. you know, almost like surfing or mm. some of these sort of things, you know, where you, you have to be really, really on point with what you're, you're doing, depending on what you're, what you're climbing. You know, when I'm on a huge, huge ice climb, that's like 600 meters high or whatever, you know, and you're just, you're just in this zone, just this beautiful zone. And I do relate some of those feelings of almost time standing still to combat where you are, very calm, very focused, not tunnel, tunnel vision so much, but just everything is just, you see what's going, you know what's happening, you know, it's just you in that moment, you in that whatever, climb. It's quite surreal. Absolutely, it makes, it, makes, it makes total sense that you'd want to chase that again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Well, when you, at some point you kind of became addicted to climbing, I mean, you really threw yourself into it. Um, you said you were living out of the back of a truck. Um, yeah. Let's, let's talk about that yeah. period of your life. How, how long do you think that period was? A couple of years, maybe? Yeah. Maybe, uh, yeah, two and, a, two and a bit years sort of thing. Yeah. So, so I was, uh, yeah. So for, again, oh, somebody who hasn't lived that kind of lifestyle, which again is most people, how would you describe, you know, sleeping in the back of a truck um, you know, I'm living a very humble, simple life um, and combining that with a passion of yours, which is climbing and experiencing such exhilarating things for, you know, a period of a couple of years. What, what, what's that life like for you? Uh, it's hard. You know, it's, it's pretty hard. Um, I always had pretty, pretty big goals that I wanted to work my way to. Um, so it was, it was a lot of fun as well, you know, meeting a lot of interesting people, yeah. traveling to a lot of interesting places. Um, and I was just able to just, just go like a dog constantly getting after what I, what I wanted to do. So it was, yeah, it was a lot of, a lot of fun. So for you, what are some of your, your, your high points or your achievements in climbing? Um, I think one of them would be being able to climb quite confidently 
at a variety of different disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, you know, very confident climbing ice, hard technical ice climbs, mixed climbing. So that's where you go between sections of rock and ice using your ice tools and crampons. So those spikes on the bottom of your boots, um, doing that in uh, alpine environment. So um, a bigger environment where you, you might have to cross crevasse fields, glacier field, whatever, to get to it, snow slopes, uh, crack climbing. I really loved that. That was sort of my, what I really loved. Big, crack long climb. crack, big, long crack roots. So where you're wedging and twisting your fingertips or your hands or your whole body into a granite crack. Um, is that just, sorry, is that, is that what's described as free solo climbing? Are you using ropes or are you just? Yeah, using, so free, yeah, free, they call it free, free climbing actually. Free climbing, yeah, sorry. Um, oh, sorry, no, free climbing, like uh, putting in your own protection in the, in the rock. So mm-hmm. you're using ta- tapered nuts, tapered piece of uh, alloy or whatever brass maybe into the constriction in the rock or a camming device that can, um, opens on itself when it gets weighted mm-hmm. so there's no real set place to put these pieces of gear in um, as opposed to like a, what they call like a sport route so maybe a route you might see in a climbing gym where you clip the bolt sort of every several feet or whatever this is all up to you so if you don't put one in for 10 feet you know you're falling 10 feet to that last piece and then 10 feet again it's that sort of stuff and i yeah i'd like to do that kind of climbing in winter as well sort of with using the ice tools and the crampons and that sort of stuff um i mentioned free solo um kind of accidentally earlier um, it's a film starring, uh, not starring, but featuring Alex uh, Honnold, is his name, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and he, yeah. He, he did a free climb up the face of, um, you know better than I, uh, in Yosemite. Half Dome. Half Dome, yeah. Um, did you ever have any experience with something maybe similar to that? Maybe not to that level, but that kind of climbing? Yeah, yeah. So I did, did do some of that as well, um, both on rock and then um, mixed climbing, you know, the rock and ice sort of stuff. Um, definitely not as high as that guy, but still high enough. If you fall, you're done. Um, free climbing, free climbing on ice. Yeah. So ice, ice climbing. Yeah. Ice climbing is just without, without ropes and without, you know, you still have your crampons and your ice axe and all those things. Just no. Yeah. Yeah. So ice. Yeah. You know, ice climbing is just, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, you can hear these huge pillars of ice. You know, you can, you can feel them move. You can hear them crack. You can see water flowing behind them. You know, you can hear the water flowing behind them. It's just, thunk, just, you know, you can hear the hollowness of it sometimes. Yeah, it's just, it's amazing. Wow. And it's, you're not... You might fall, but you know you get those guys in there. You're pretty, you're you're solid. You know if you get a good rhythm going, yeah, you get a good rhythm. So yeah, I did do um, did do some soloing, um, 
you know, I had done, done the roots many times before, so I was very comfortable and they were, they were well below the grades of what I was, you know, that was hard. It was quite easy for me sort of thing. So it was, you could feel like you could just, just get into this rhythm and this flow and it's, you don't have to stop and wait for your partner to come up. You know, you can just, you can mm -hmm. just move and, you know, roots I did, would be on for like a couple hours, just cruising. Just, it's, it's really nice. I don't know. It's like going for, going for a long run, run or something. Yeah. So sort what's, what's, what's happening in your mind when you're climbing something like that? Is your mind kind of clear and open? Is it empty? Is it, is it like a meditative state? Um, yes, it's very, yeah, very meditative, you know, just, just, yeah, just a, just a pure flow state. Just, it's just you doing this physical output and you're, you still have to be on point though. You know, you, you're still focused on what you're doing in, in extreme detail. You know, when you're, when you're climbing with a, with a rope or something, depending what you're doing, you know, it's fine. You can, you can fall. You know, even if you're going to take a big, huge fall, which they call in climbing, uh, taking the whipper, you know, that's fine. You know, you, you're used to it where you can might, you know, try many different times, many different moves to get around a certain crux of a problem. But in that, in those moments of soloing, it's, you know, it's just this beautiful flow state. Absolutely. Well, Josh, unfortunately, about four years ago, I think when you were about 31 years of age, um, you did indeed have a very traumatic and life-changing fall while climbing. Could you talk about um, the climb that led to that fall? What were you climbing? Yeah, so I was in Squamish, British Columbia. That's just an, an hour north of Vancouver. And it's a big, it's a big kind of granite crack climbing area. It's one of the biggest areas in Canada. Uh, it's a place I've been a few times and I can't remember the actual climb I was on, um, but it was in a place called the Smoke Bluffs. It's just these bands of cliffs that go up into the hillsides. And uh, I was going to this area, I was quite far back from the main road. Um, and I was doing a style of climbing called rope soloing. And that's just where I manage all the rope work myself. Um, so what I do is I build an anchor on the bottom of a mechanical device that feeds the rope through as I go up and I put in the gear into the crack. Um, and I was just going up and down, excuse me, just going up and down this band of cliffs, just practicing this style of climbing. Um, and I was alone for the morning and then as the day kind of warmed up a little bit more, a few more climbers came and don't really don't really remember what happened at all but I was uh, what they call jumaring this is all I this is all that I remember was I was jumaring so using a mechanical ascending device to go up a fixed rope um, and it just went black completely black well and uh, let me interrupt you for a moment Josh because um mm -hmm what you're alluding to is that you you keep saying you can't remember you can't remember and the reason you can't remember is you fell off the side of that cliff uh 60 feet 70 feet how far was it yeah it was uh 65 feet so um months later i ended up getting an email from one of the other climbers that was in the area then 
who actually saw me fall. Um, so she was at the top of her climb and just looking over at me and I was hooked in at the anchor at the tops of the two bolts and I was organizing all my ropes and gear. So that's how I know I was at the top of the climb. And in the guidebook, it says that it's 65 feet and she just saw me falling straight back, uh, straight down. So I landed on my shoulder and the back of my head hit a boulder and I was still, still conscious, um, trying to sit up and trying to help. But like I said, I don't remember. So I was airlifted to Vancouver um, and I was revived twice in the helicopter. Um, revived twice. I don't really, yeah. Um, and I don't really remember too much from the first month in hospital, but it was, it was what I do remember um, was people coming to visit me here and there but probably the first two weeks was very intense um, where my mind reverted back to probably the last bit of trauma that I had. And I thought I was back on operations in Afghanistan. And I thought that I had been actually captured and I was being tortured and I was trying to escape. Um, and obviously I couldn't, I only had use of my arms at that time being paralyzed, but not knowing. Um, my eyes were covered at times, probably just passed out, but I was still able to hear all these sounds around me, the nurses, the doctors, going into operations, all this sort of stuff. And it just was not registering at all. And I was actually, I actually had to be restrained a couple times because I was pulling out all these cords and cables and just, it was pretty, br pretty brutal. You know? what, what was the extent of your, your injuries? So yeah, the extent of my injuries was uh, I had bleeding on my brain, uh, lacerations all over my body, multiple fractures, rib fractures. I had uh, an aortic dissection. So that's from the impact. There's layers of your aorta were torn into, layers of my aorta were torn and detached. I had... Uh, collapsed lungs and they were filling with blood so that had to be drained um, broken legs and the main injury was a complete sever of the spinal cord at chest level so spine was just shifted completely off um, yeah so and, yeah it's pretty brutal Brutal, and you were you were you don't remember the first two months of the recovery period except for a few things here and there yeah, the, the first month, the first month, I don't, don't really remember at all. Um, I want to know, Josh, um, while you were in the hospital, maybe after that initial couple months, <clears throat> um, you did kind of get your wits about you to some degree. And it started to dawn on you the extent of your injuries, the severing of your spine, as you said. Um, Obviously, that's a, a horrible trauma, especially for somebody, for anybody, but for somebody who's an active person like you are. Was there anybody that, kind of in those early days, anybody who had had a similar experience, anybody who had a serious injury that, that came along and, and tried to show you, like, this is awful, this is horrible, but you still have life to live. Like, there's, you can still have a, a, full, a fulfilled life. 
despite this injury. Yeah. Was there anybody that came out and, and, and kind of showed you the light, if you will? Yeah, there was, a, there was quite a few people, actually. Um, so I, I ended up getting airlifted from Vancouver to Calgary um, in Alberta, and I was there. And, yeah, I had a couple athletes that came by, um, para-athletes, different levels of spinal injury from really low in the waist and high quadriplegics, so broken necks. And a lot of them were just brutally honest with me, like, Hey man, this is, this is what's in store for you. You know, um, we do all the sports, whatever it was. Um, so there's, there's, there's so much you can do. It's not over. Don't give up, you know, very, very positive, but very honest with me, which I really, I really appreciated. Like, Hey, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna lose control of your bladder or, you know, it's going to take a long time to figure this stuff out. So that, that was really, really, I was really, really lucky to have that. Um, Josh, eventually you were, you were healthy enough to leave the hospital. Um, how long in total were you in the hospital? What was the, the total length of time? So eight months, eight months I was in the hospital for. Um, the last month I was in a local hospital in my town and I was just getting the house ready, you know, getting a lifting organizing you know making the house accessible for myself yeah that's that's so, kind of what i'm going to ask you about is um when you did initially leave the hospital there were obviously physical challenges for you um things that you've most likely obviously adapted to at this point but in the early days like you you're learning how to use your body in a new way psychologically you're you're adapting like you're you, you've been traumatized and you're trying to return to normal life what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced once you finally left the hospital, when it was, you know, you're going to live, you're going to live, you're not, you're not going to die from that fall. And now you have to adjust yeah. to this new life. What were the challenges when you, when you got out of the hospital? Yeah, probably, probably one of the biggest ones was maybe just getting up and getting going. You know, I didn't, you know, in hospital I had, okay, you've got physio now, you've got occupational therapy now, you've got to be here, you know, so that kind of kept me a little bit busy. Um, so at home I was like, oh, what the heck do I do now? You know, mm. I could just I could just lay in bed all day, you know, but I knew that that was just going to be a downward spiral. I knew where that could lead. And I didn't, I didn't want to go. I did not want to go there. You know, I even saw it in hospital with some of the other patients and I just, I did not want to go, go down that road. So I had to just tell myself like, get up, get going. Let's, let's get a shift on. Let's get a move on. And I was, I was quite lucky. Um, I started hand cycling while I was in hospital. So that gave me a sense of purpose, a sense of, sense of direction, uh, a goal to keep me, to keep me moving, to keep my mind going as well. Well, I kind of figured, figured stuff out, but it was hard, you know, um, re, you know, I had to relearn everything, you know, it was, it was fine doing it in hospital, whether it's an occupational therapist there, X, Y, and Z, whoever helping you. And now I'm here, but you know, I had my family around me, which was extremely, who are extremely supportive. Uh, so to kind of lighten that transition period it would have been a different story as well so they just pick me up and go okay you're out here you go 
man, I can see how guys, people get lost, you know, absolutely very difficult. Well, you said you didn't yeah. want to go down that road. You said you didn't want to lay in bed all day because it was just a downward spiral. Did you have somebody yeah. that was kind of like, not literally, but sort of slapping you in the face and saying, you know, get your shit together. Let's, let's, let's get on with life. You can't lay in bed all day. Was it one of those hand cyclers? Was it your, somebody in your family? Were you doing it to yourself internally? Where was that motivation yeah, was, coming from? It was, it was definitely, um, you know, from, from myself within, like, let's, let's get moving, you know, maybe, maybe at the time I didn't want to deal with anything that happened. I was just like, all right, this is what happened. Forget, you know, just forget whatever. Let's, let's just move on. Definitely had that attitude. Um, but also, you know, the guys that I knew and I'm still know and very much in touch with, it's kind of like an odd sense of loyalty to the guys in the military that I, you know, like, and I, there were so many examples as well of guys that had lost limbs in Afghanistan and suffered horrific injuries, just moving on with their life, you know, doing ex extraordinary things. And that, that was a, that was a huge motivating factor for myself, as well as all these other people that were now new in my life in the hand cycling and encouraging me and being a excellent example for me. So I was like, okay, I owe it to them. You know, like I, I can do this, you know, I'm not going to waste any time type thing. Let's talk a little bit about hand cycling. You said you started doing that when you were in the hospital. And I think now, correct me if I'm wrong, aren't, aren't you a professional hand cycler? Yeah, well, I would, yeah, I wouldn't say professional. Um, I am a development, I'm a development athlete with Cycling Canada. So I'm headed into that, into that direction as it were. Yeah. So quickly describe what is, what is hand cycling? So it's a, it's a recumbent bike. So two wheels in the back and one in the front with my legs on either side of the front wheel, um, pushing and pulling at the same time on the cranks and it's the same gearing as a bike except for it's just backwards and upside down so we do so i race and train in it and we do uh, road races which are about between say 30 and 40 kilometers that's where everybody's moving together to race obviously and then time trials so just you against the clock um, they can be they're usually around 20 kilometers and that can be with hills, turns, all sorts of stuff. Um, so sort of the really fast guys, if you want to put it down to time, are probably moving maybe about 40 kilometers an hour on a really fast course, somewhere in and around there. So I'm definitely not that fast yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. I think um, the fastest that I've been on the bike on a downhill has been like recorded was uh, 97 kilometers an hour. I think I've gone faster. Um, just my bike computer wasn't working. And <laughs> that's, that's quite fast. It, it sounds to me like hand cycling was, you know, maybe not literally, but kind of a, a life saver for somebody like you. You suffered this horrific injury. And for a lot of people, they wouldn't have for somebody like you, I should say, you, you would also, you would need an outlet physically. You wanted to challenge yourself physically, um, you know, through climbing or all the challenges that you had in the military. You're a very physical person. When, when you found this, mm -hmm. did you just latch onto it immediately? 
straight away. You know, I, st I, I got introduced to it uh, three months post-injury and I started training with a coach twice a week after my physiotherapy I'd go and start training and I was I was hooked you know it's what I it's what I needed I needed that I needed that output I need just that you know some people go to the gym when they feel down hit the punching bag or whatever like I needed this and I, I needed a lot of it um, so it definitely it filled that it filled that physical output that I needed um, it uh, and then and the drive and goal setting and all that stuff but it doesn't really, it doesn't really uh, kind of fulfill the the mental stuff, you know. Like when I was talking about kind of being in that flow state, um, that that sort of side of it that I've had so much in my life, in the climbing, in the even in the security work to a certain extent, and definitely the the, the war fighting, you know. Have you found any, Have you found anything that does? come close to that to be able to replace that no not not really not a not really you know i can i i do some i have done some pretty big endurance rides um and it's it's not really it's not really the same you know where where there's so much there's there's not really anything at stake if that makes sense but hey i'm all right with that now you know <laughs> Well, I want to ask you a question. It might seem kind of naive of me asking this, but you know, I've seen para athletes capable of doing just about anything. Is there any possibility that you could return to climbing? I mean, obviously yeah. a different style of climbing, but Yeah, I have I have thought about I have thought about it. Um there has been some guys that have done some pretty big climbs like Al Cap, the big face that you referenced earlier. Um mm -hmm. But that was like the Jumaring I was talking about, just the ascending a rope, kind of doing a, yeah. a million pull-ups to get to yeah. the top of that thing. Um, I have thought about a way to uh, climb, like lead climb, so putting in that protection myself. Um, but that would have to be under a huge roof crack. Um, I've talked with a friend of mine that also got injured climbing, um, a pair about doing some of that, but just I'm too busy too busy but too too busy with the cycling I might have to take a little break and do that at some point but well, I'd be curious it's, to hear, it's always in, to hear about it's that always in the back of my mind of course it is yeah, yeah it was one of the, the greatest experiences yeah. of your life um, let's see Josh so for somebody who has gone through a, a similar trauma that you similar to what you experienced maybe it's not the exact same thing maybe it's like you said somebody a soldier who lost a limb or something like that. Um, somebody who's lying in their hospital bed, perhaps listening to this or watching this, um, what kind of advice would you give to somebody in that situation? Um, I would say just be, be honest with yourself. You know, be, be honest with, with what, you're, what you're feeling, how you're feeling and maybe start asking yourself what you need, what you need to do, you know, and that can be really hard, especially when you're very, you know, everything has changed and, you know, it's just, it's just a roller coaster, but, you know, reach out, reach out and, and ask for some help, you know, uh, before you start that kind of downward spiral, as well as, you know, it's, 
it's not it's not over and just find something just find something sink your teeth into it whatever whatever it is sink your teeth into it and you know it'll shift and change if you set it type thing that's good advice good advice josh yeah. Um, well, Josh, it's, it's been such a pleasure to, to hear your story, the highs and the lows. Uh, I think this is the kind of talk that can directly inspire others as well. So I'd like to thank you very much for your time and for joining me today on Meet My Inspiration. Hey, thank you so much for having me and thanks your audience for listening. Really appreciate it. A huge thanks to Josh for taking the time to talk with me and for sharing his story in such an open and honest way. If you want to find out more about Josh and keep up on his activities, you can check out his website, joshuapelland.com. There you'll find his social media links, some cool photos of the many things he has done in life, and links to book him for speaking engagements. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Meet My Inspiration, and I hope we've been able to inspire you too, even if just a little. Sometimes that's all it takes to make great things happen. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like broadcasting to the world everything you do online. Here's how to protect yourself and get three months for free. Did you know that your internet service provider knows every single website you visit? And what's worse is they can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who will use your data to target you. ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that your online activity can't be seen by anyone. ExpressVPN works on all devices, phones, laptops, even routers, so that everyone who shares your Wi-Fi is protected too. And the best part is using ExpressVPN is super easy. Just fire up the app, click one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the world's number one rated VPN by TechRadar, Wired, The Verge, and countless others. So if you believe your online activity is your business, secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com MMI, and you can get an extra three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash MMI.